Optimal health for high performers. This is the Health Upgrade Podcast with Dr. Nawaz Habib. Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of the Health Upgrade Podcast. I'm here again with my co-host, JP Erico. Great to see you, JP. Good to see you, too. So today we want to dig into a slightly new topic, and that is autoimmunity. How autoimmune conditions begin, the pathophysiology behind many of them. These are conditions like rheumatoid arthritis, Stroger's syndrome, Crohn's, ulcerative colitis, you name it, lupus. There's so many of these autoimmune conditions, multiple sclerosis, another one. And these are very common, unfortunately. And what is happening in a lot of these conditions is our personal internal immune system is actually acting against or attacking our own cells. One of the more common ones, for example, is Hashimoto's thyroiditis. And we know that there are multiple types of antibodies that can be produced against our thyroid. And that can trigger what's called hypothyroidism. And one of the most prescribed drugs in North America is Synthroid, likely due to hypothyroidism. And Hashimoto's is the primary trigger for that. It's not a primary hypothyroidism. It's secondary to this autoimmune condition that can be going on. And so we want to talk about how do these conditions begin? What's the pathophysiology that actually leads to these challenges occurring? And we want to just have a very brief overview of how autoimmune conditions can occur within each one of us. All right. So today, why don't we start with talking a little bit about the immune system in general? Let's talk a little bit about a very basic overview of our immune system. I know we've got a slightly different approach towards it. We've got a third arm of the immune system that we talk about, which we will discuss a lot more. But right now, in the case of autoimmunity, we want to talk about the innate and the adaptive immune systems. JP, tell me a little bit about the immune system overall and those two branches that we discussed. Sure. The traditional view of the immune system is that it has two arms. As you said, we believe that there's really a third arm that, that involves the central nervous system. But at the most basic level, you have two arms. One is the adaptive immune system, but before that is the innate immune system. The innate immune system is the most basic response that's, if you want to say, very violent as soon as your body either is injured or has the influx of uh, bacteria or virus into it, your body responds and reacts to non-self. It responds to non-self by attacking anything that doesn't sort of have a, a sign on it that says, hey, uh, this is me, don't attack yourself. And the way that happens is that there's certain molecular complexes, major histocompatibility complexes are, are an example that every cell in your body has on it. And it says, this is me, this is self, don't attack self. And so it downregulates that attacking force of your innate immune system. Once we've experienced a virus or a bacteria the first time, part of what the innate immune system's job is to expose a very special set of cells in your body that are part of your adaptive immune system to the little bits and pieces that are left over from that attack. So for example, let's say your body has chickenpox. I mean, many adults have had chickenpox in their lives. We all got it before the uh, vaccines came out, but we got chickenpox the first time and we got sick and our innate immune system did its job and cleared the virus out of our bodies. But along the way, we, we had the symptoms, we had the, the little sores and, and we had itchiness and a fever. 
But the innate immune system, as part of its job after destroying all these viruses, is to leave on their surfaces as antigen-presenting cells. They take all the bits and pieces of those destroyed viruses and put them on their surfaces, and then they expose those special cells of the adaptive immune system to those little bits and pieces. And the way it works is that your adaptive immune system produces hundreds of millions of different types of cells, each one very specific for a specific molecular pattern. And so it's really trying to cover all of its possible bases, but it doesn't want to have all hundred million of these cells having to be produced in mass quantities. So it has very limited numbers of each one that are sort of randomly produced. And then as part of this antigen presenting process, the innate immune system shows those viral molecular patterns to those, those adaptive immune cells. And the ones that react to them, the ones that recognize those viral parts, and it's really a random process, but the ones that react to them, they will then begin to be the ones that are upregulated. They'll start to produce massive quantities of them. And then we have our adaptive immune response. That means the next time that we come in contact with chickenpox, the virus is in us. We've had it enter our systems, but now our systems are primed and ready to go where there's lots and lots of these cells that can produce antibodies or those are B cells or T cells that recognize the hallmarks, molecular patterns of chickenpox, and they go to work and they destroy any cell in the body that's been infected very quickly. And even though we really truly do contract chickenpox a second time, we don't get sick from it. And it's a very, very limited experience and it's subclinical. You don't even know you had it. The problem that can occur in this process is in order to prevent our bodies from being susceptible to tiny little variations in that virus. So viruses are constantly mutating. And in order to prevent that from occurring, one of the things that our adaptive immune system does is it plays with the molecular pattern just slightly. That's called clonal drift. And so the, the cells in our adaptive immune system that are fighting against the chickenpox, as they reproduce, there's not 100% fidelity in their reproduction. And so you get slightly different, different molecular patterns that they recognize. And every once in a while, that can lead to your adaptive immune system now reacting to self because there's something in the body that's close to it. So a great example is the Epstein-Barr virus. Yeah. The Epstein-Barr virus is associated with a number of different autoimmune diseases, not the least of which is multiple sclerosis. And so what happens is if your body is making antibodies against Epstein-Barr virus, and as a result of the specific genetic code that you have and the way that your body makes that specific antibody, it's possible that as a result, you may also create antibodies and B cells and T cells that attack the Schwann cells that are part of the myelination of, of your axons in your nervous system, which is what multiple sclerosis is all about. You have an autoimmune response against that part of your body. I hope that sort of explains it in a nutshell. Yeah, it's a great little overview, a great way to understand how the immune system, which is meant to be protective against non-self entering and, and attacking and, and hurting our cells, 
can work well in circumstances, in most circumstances. However, there is a pathophysiology around the shifting of what it is capable of recognizing. And so there are instances where the body's major histocompatibility complexes are overridden by almost a, a process of what would be construed as molecular mimicry, where virus, where the auto or the immune cells recognize a similar sequence on a protein that's shown on a self cell, on a cell of the Schwann cell, or on a thyroid cell, for example, or whatever other cell is potentially going to be attacked. And because those look similar, when given the right circumstances, the immune cell will start to attack the self cell rather than just look for the non-self. And so this is where autoimmunity or self-immunity tends to occur. This is the process by which that tends to occur. You mentioned Epstein-Barr virus, and I think it's really important to talk about where these viruses potentially could enter the body, where a lot of these other triggers that could come into the body come through into the body. And the primary way that a lot of these bacteria, parasites, viruses, yeast, and worms, and even proteins located on a lot of our foods enter our body is obviously through the gut. This is why Hippocrates said all chronic disease or all disease begins in the gut. It's because a lot of the things that we should have come in through the gut, but that's also where we are most susceptible to things coming in that should not be coming in. So a very basic, but a very important number to note is we have about 50 trillion human cells in our body, somewhere between 40 to 60 trillion human cells. But in just our large intestine alone, we have 100 trillion bacterial cells. Mix that in with a bunch of bacteria or viruses and parasites that might be present. Mix that in with yeast or worms that might be present. And we have a potential area where when there's imbalance that's occurring within that 100 trillion bacterial population because of dietary reasons or because of stress that might have triggered some sort of negative reaction or our gut isn't moving well enough because we don't have that peristaltic action because we're eating too quickly or we're in a rush all the time sitting in that fight or flight state. What we're allowing is an opportunity for dysfunction to occur within the gut. We're allowing for the bacterial population to be shifted and dysbiosis to occur. And what that means is certain bacteria that we can have in small quantities will sometimes increase in quantity based on the fact that they were given an opportunity. These are opportunistic bacteria that tend to be a trigger. Viruses as well can be the same way, Epstein-Barr being one of those. And what we tend to find is when we have this increase in this particular type of opportunistic bacteria, it's because the immune system isn't reacting super well in that area. Either the stress level was too high or it's focused on attacking something else that's entering the body. And this opportunistic bacteria or virus or parasite is able to increase in quantity. When it does so, it starts to produce negative byproducts. And that includes lipopolysaccharide endotoxins. It includes things like stealing a lot of our nutrients that are coming in, things like vitamin B12 love to be stolen by parasites, for example. And that starts to create 
a breakdown in the lining of our gut. And so I want to talk a little bit about the gut lining and what we now know as leaky gut syndrome or intestinal hyperpermeability as being a major trigger for why these bacteria and toxins can get into the body. So these toxins are really important. And I think understanding that the bacterial population plays a major role in allowing the toxin production to occur, but these toxins are known to break down the zonulin and occludin proteins between adjacent cells. Those are the cells that hold our microvilli cells together, the cells that line the gut. Those zonulin and occludin proteins need to be really tight and really strong, but when they get broken down by certain proteins, by certain endotoxins, then what happens is the gut cells start to become a little bit leaky. They, they start to allow for small toxins to enter through there. That includes lipopolysaccharide. That includes proteins for some people, for example, like gliadin protein, which is the protein component of gluten, or casein protein in dairy, or the, some of the proteins present in nightshade vegetables. And when they start to get in, they get in through that initial layer of the intestinal wall. They're able to enter into layers below where 70% of our immune cells by volume are located. Another fun stat, about 70% by volume of our immune cells are located in the lining of the gut. Just goes to show how important the gut is in that protective mechanism, ensuring that these toxins don't start to enter the body. Anything to add on to that? Yeah, absolutely. Just to highlight the fact that that endothelial lining is only a couple of cells, and in some cases, just one cell thick. Same is true in the lungs, because the lining of the lungs has to have a barrier against the outside world. The skin, obviously, is also the dermal layers are protection. They're thicker than what you see in the endothelial lining. Even with inside the body, there's the blood-brain barrier, which is a barrier that prevents things that are in the bloodstream from necessarily getting into the brain as easily as they can get into other organs. But within that layer, as you said, there are immune cells, obviously in the gut with all of that non-self that's resident there, there's a tremendous percentage of the overall immune system that's present. But among them are innate immune cells like macrophages. And just to spend a moment talking about the role of macrophages just within in all of our organs, but in the gut in particular, macrophages are incredibly important cells. We've spent some time talking about the role that they had in, in the creation of the brain, but they have a role in the literally the development from just a few days into gestation after conception, all the way through the end of our lives. These resident macrophages that are sitting in the tissue are involved in every aspect of how our bodies function. And so when they're primed to react violently, if you will, because they're part of that innate immune system, violent response to non-self, they can overreact. And when they overreact, they can cause damage to structures that we don't want to see damaged. They actually have a negative impact on our body. And so what we have to be careful of is anything that would prime our microglial cells, things like stress, things like lack of sleep, toxins that we may come in contact with. Prior infections can actually prime our macrophages as well. And sometimes those inflammatory events can occur very early in life, even prior to birth. And those inflammatory events can prime our macrophages to be more responsive than is necessarily healthy. 
And so part of the autoimmune disease process is oftentimes not just what we talked about before of the adaptive immune system producing antibodies or T cells that are reactive, but sometimes it's simply a function of the fact that our macrophages have been so primed, so pushed into that hypervigilant state that they're too reactive. And as a result of being too reactive, they cause us discomfort, they cause us damage, they cause the gut lining to break down, they cause our lung tissue to become inflamed. Asthma would be an example of this, where an allergen or something that's injurious in a minor way that would otherwise be ignored isn't ignored. And there's a trigger. And all of a sudden that allergen causes for people who have asthma to have bronchospasm and have edema and have their lungs, you know, literally filling up with fluid. All of this is a function of the innate immune system and specifically tissue resident macrophages are not functioning properly. Now there's a second piece to it. It's not, I wish it were just that because that would be relatively straightforward to address. But what happens is when we have a lot of stress in our lives and a lot of people who experience autoimmune diseases will talk about the fact that stress makes it worse. Now you say, well, why does stress make it worse? Well, one of the things we know is that when you are stressed and there's a lot of concern or lack of sleep or other things that are going on in your life, that your sympathetic nervous system is activated. And we know that when the sympathetic nervous system is activated, it's calling for more inflammation. It calls on other organs that are specifically immune organs, things like your spleen and otherwise, to release monocytes into circulation. And they'll go to those sites where those macrophages are overreacting and just provide more macrophages because the monocytes will leave the circulation, move into the tissue and become tissue resident macrophages that are temporarily there to enhance inflammation. So it's a feedback loop. Ways to break it are obviously to, to do things that would reduce your inflammation levels. You can take things into your body that will do that, but also by modulating the autonomic nervous system. Uh, and I know that that's a, a big topic for this season. So I wanted to bring it in pretty early on in this conversation and to say that if activating the sympathetic nervous system is enhancing the inflammatory process that's damaging, then what we want to do is offset that by enhancing the parasympathetic. Yeah. And I would completely agree with that. It's so important to understand that the immune system cells are under autonomic control without our general knowledge being able to talk about this, that every one of these immune cells or the vast majority, at least the macrophages, even the tissue resident and the circulating macrophages all have this alpha-7 nicotinic acetylcholine receptor on them. This receptor is the key to producing a turnout on the macrophages into either the destructive side. So when this receptor is not activated, they're going to become more destructive, more breakdown, more, more of the M1 style macrophage that's going to create more destruction and break down, phagocytize a lot of the cells or the debris that are present that can't be present for optimal function. When we do activate that receptor using primarily acetylcholine as the neurotransmitter provided via the vagus nerve, via the T cells when they're circulating, that will then create an M2 shift in those macrophages being a very productive shift, more of an angiogenesis, more of a growth-based macrophage activity. Rather than it being that destructive, it's going to be a very productive 
cell production that's going to occur. And so we can see almost that there's a priming that can occur based on multiple factors, multiple variables that are inflammatory, that are stress producing, that are anxiety producing, that'll shift us towards that M1 destructive macrophage activity. And there's a set of activities and lifestyles and tools that we can use to help shift us towards that M2 in combination with things like vagus nerve stimulation, a lot of the activities that are required for us to get into that rest and digest phase will help to shift activity towards that M2 productive macrophage activity. For those who haven't heard our prior podcast, if you have, then everything that you just said makes 100% sense. For those who haven't, perhaps it's worth spending a little bit of time talking about the role of the immune system and the nervous system and how it works together. So we've talked about in the past the fact that the brain and the central nervous system and really our nervous system in general is very closely and tightly related to the immune system. And nerve cells throughout your body are not only covered in neurotransmitter receptors, but also uh, cytokine receptors. And cytokines are the molecules that are typically thought of as the communication vocabulary, if you will, of the immune system. And more importantly, and you just brought up the fact that immune cells, especially innate immune cells, have on them receptors for neurotransmitters. And neurotransmitters are typically thought of as the words and vocabulary of the nervous system. So the two really communicate very easily between them. And it's important because the immune system is so powerful and can be so destructive that the nervous system has the ability to modulate how those those immune cells are functioning. And one of the ways that happens is through parasympathetic signaling. We talked earlier, just a few minutes ago, talking about how the sympathetic nervous system, that arm of our autonomic nervous system, can activate inflammation. It's not the only thing that it can do because actually the, the sympathetic nervous system has the ability to sort of drive us away from homeostasis. Mm -hmm. It can drive us either into more inflammation as we've been talking about, but it can drive us into less inflammation also, but that's very situationally specific. And so as a result, typically sympathetic overdrive, especially long-term chronic stress and chronic sleep deprivation and chronic toxin presentation or exposure will lead to a heightened level of inflammation, heightened level of sympathetic activity being destructive. The heightened level of parasympathetic activity, which is acetylcholine, can drive the immune system and the rest of the body back into, as you said, rest, digest, and restore mode. And that is incredibly helpful, especially in the, in the situation where autoimmunity is potentially present and autoinflammation is present, that we can use that hack, if you will, that nervous system avenue to control the inflammation. Just to put a fine point on it, those immune cells have on them both the alpha-7 nicotinic acetylcholine receptor, which pushes those innate immune cells into a less reactive, into a more quiescent state, less inflammation, more anti-inflammatory, shutting down TNF-alpha, shutting down IL-1, upregulating IL-10, which is an anti-inflammatory cytokine, but also has beta-2 receptors on them. And the beta-2 receptors, as I said before, that is where norepinephrine, or if you're over on the other side of the pond, noradrenaline, where that will 
cause both inflammation and anti-inflammation, but beta-2 receptors sort of help shut down that inflammation. So we have the ability using our nervous system to both activate and deactivate inflammation. And it's important upon us for us to recognize how our own lifestyles and the things that we're doing might contribute to more and more inflammation because everything in life, all the insults and all the challenges that we experience in life will ultimately push us in the direction of more inflammation. It's on us to do the things necessary to dial that back and keep ourselves for as long as possible in that homeostasis, more quiescent anti-inflammatory state so that we can survive with less discomfort, less injury, less tissue damage, et cetera. Now, bringing that back to the gut, because as you said, that's a really important location where inflammation can be triggered and a lot of things that are immunogenic will ultimately pass through, especially if there's inflammation already present. One of the things that parasympathetic activation or vagus nerve activation can do is change even the types of cells that are present in that tissue. And following on the work that was done that discovered this inflammatory reflex, other researchers have identified that in the gut in particular, there's not only a tremendous number of immune cells, but there's also a tremendous amount of innervation. So there's a tremendous communication. In fact, the parasympathetic nervous system is often referred to as the brain-gut axis. It's the connection that's the largest and most important. What happens is when the parasympathetic or the vagus nerve is activated, it releases acetylcholine. And that not only shuts down the macrophages that are present, but it actually changes the types of T cells, the different type of immune cell that are present in that tissue. See, the various different types of T cells can be produced from an upstream stem cell, a progenitor cell that's sitting in that tissue, waiting to figure out what type of cell is needed. When you have inflammation, it would drive the differentiation of those progenitor cells into Th17 cells. Th17 cells are very inflammatory. They're part of a, the fight or flight mode of the body. When you activate the vagus nerve and activate that parasympathetic, the release of acetylcholine onto those progenitor cells pushes them in the direction of producing regulatory cells, what are called FOXP3 positive Treg cells. And those Treg cells are anti-inflammatory. So putting this all together, when you have the potential for inflammation and you activate the sympathetic nervous system, you're going to drive it into a higher level of inflammation. When you activate the parasympathetic you're suppressing that inflammation, you're producing more Treg cells, you're allowing that tissue to heal and become anti-inflammatory and restore its normal homeostasis or homeostatic function. And I think that's really important for people to understand. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what would be a great little analogy if you're a little lost here, just as a really simple side to this, is the sympathetic nervous system drives the car with the accelerator and the parasympathetic nervous system drives the car or slows it down using brakes. Both are required. We need both to be present. We need to have a sympathetic nervous system. We can't just simply be in parasympathetic all the time. We need to have a, an accelerator and brakes on the car in order for it to go, but to go safely. Otherwise, we'd just be going off, veering off and potentially causing harm with the car 
Okay, so a car analogy does kind of fit here just to create a little level of simplicity. You brought it back to the gut, and I think that's a really important place to be. I want to talk a little bit about practical, actually, application of this in functional medicine and functional approach to understanding autoimmune diseases. And a big part of my practice does focus on helping people identify the root cause of autoimmune conditions. And that has to do with functional lab testing, because we've now gotten to a point where technology has kind of caught up to this understanding that there's got to be some trigger that creates this molecular mimicry response or creates this immune activation that's then leading to an autoimmune response. And if it is something that we can decrease the accelerator use in that particular situation, we can also start to eliminate the potential causes as to why this was happening in the first place. Why did it even go off? Why did the gut become leaky in the first place? We look in functional medicine, the question we're constantly asking ourselves is why? Why is this happening? What's upstream of where we found this symptom or this challenge or this issue or this diagnosis? What's upstream of this? Let's look backwards and ensure that we're not missing anything that led to where we are right now. And the way to do that is using particularly stool testing when it comes to functional lab testing. And this is where we can assess the microbiome. We can assess the balance between those hundred trillion bacteria, parasites, viruses, yeast, and worms that are present internally in the gut. And like I said, we've kind of caught up to it now. We've kind of caught up to this understanding. We've always known that the microbiome played a major important role, especially over the last kind of couple of decades, understanding that this was important, but now we can actually test for it on a practical, scalable way. And so there's particular tests that I like to use in practice to help to identify what those challenges are. And we'll often find in a case of autoimmunity, some bacterial trigger that's leading to this. Things like Citrobacter bacteria, Klebsiella, Prevotella, Proteus species, Fusobacterium. There's so many different potential types, but when we can identify which one is present, which one is high, then we have a target as to what we then want to work to eliminate. We've also seen some cases of dysbiotic and overgrowth bacteria lead to autoimmunity. And these are not autoimmune triggering bacteria per se, but they can lead to the leakiness in the gut that can lead to this challenge as well. Things like Morganella species, Pseudomonas species, Strep, Staphylococcus aureus, Methanobacteria. These are all potential triggers from a bacterial population that can create that leakiness internally within the gut. On the parasite side, things like Blastocystis hominis and Dolimax nana have been shown to create these challenges. There are situations where Candida, Candida albicans, and other Candida species on a yeast or fungus-based perspective can create these challenges. And even more importantly, low levels of good bacteria, the good beneficial bacteria, can lead to these challenges because when we don't have a high level of good bacterial population, the symbiotic relationship between those good bacteria that we want present, as well as our cells, is going to be reduced. And that has to do a lot with short-chain fatty acids, primarily butyrate production. And when we don't have that butyrate production, the ability for those cells to remain strong and tight together actually decreases. We, we have a decrease in the mucus layer that protects our intestinal lining that tends to start to dissipate a little bit. And the opportunity pops up for even food-based 
proteins to come in and trigger a breakdown in that gut lining. And so I mentioned a few of these earlier, gluten in some cases, gliadin particularly being the protein component. In some people's cases, dairy is a major trigger. And so casein protein has been implicated in that particularly. And in other cases, nightshade vegetables, in particular things like peppers, potatoes, eggplant have been implicated as potential triggers for a breakdown. So this is where we're looking for that why. Is it a bacterial thing? Is it a viral thing? Is it a parasitic thing? Is it a food-based thing? Oftentimes in a therapeutic sense, we're going to try to eliminate a lot of those food challenges and go towards what's called an autoimmune paleo style diet, where your diet is primarily focused on meat and vegetables, but those vegetables that are away from the nightshades. And then a slow introduction to see if anything triggers a reaction after a period of time being off of those foods. And then from a, a testing side, we can actually identify within a couple of weeks, we get the results back to tell us this is what's high, this is what's high, this is potentially low on the good side. And then we can actually see and create a target approach to what's happening internally when we are able to finally identify. Anything to add on that? I would just add that it's not necessarily that those that your body has an allergy yes. to those different foods or components of the food, but rather that they are inflammatory or they're breaking down the integrity of that single cell thick endothelial lining. And as a result, it's activating the innate immune system. So in small quantities, those things may be tolerable or in an environment where the microbiome is functioning more properly, then you can eat things that you otherwise found to be causing you discomfort or causing even beyond discomfort, pain and symptoms that are dysfunction. But simply by fixing the endothelial lining and therefore preventing the tissue underneath from becoming even more inflamed than it otherwise is, is really the key. And so there's really two ways to approach it. One is to restore that endothelial lining so it serves as a, a more rigorous barrier, in which case you can eat those things, or shut down the response, the immune response that's overly exuberant. So for example, we've seen people with gluten allergies find that their symptoms are tremendously abated simply by using techniques to activate the parasympathetic vagus nerve activation. And so it is entirely possible that people who, I'm not suggesting celiac disease, which is something where there's now a genetic risk of, and, and that can actually lead to, to you know, metastatic disease. What I'm talking about is people who have a gluten allergy that may be associated with the fact that they have an endothelial lining that's not functioning properly, but yet when they eat it, they can still tolerate it, provided that even though the barrier is not functioning properly, that the effect that that gluten has inside the tissue with respect to the macrophages is reduced tremendously. So for example, we have a, a family friend. She's Italian. She loves to eat bread and pizza and pasta and other things. And she had to stop eating all of those entirely. And so over dinner, I was speaking with her and I said, boy, you know, it's, I would have kind of thought that you would want some bread. And she said, no, no, I can't have any. If I do in the morning, my ankles will be swollen. My my shoulders will hurt. I'll feel like I got hit by a truck. And so I just had to cut out all breads. I thought to myself, I said, you know, I wonder whether or not this might be an opportunity to give her something back in her life that she really liked. And I said, what would it mean to you to be able to eat bread and other things again? And she said, oh my God, 
it would be literally, you know, from heaven. And I said, well, I think there's a way to do that. And so I introduced her to the idea that activating her parasympathetic nervous system in a very specific way might be effective for allowing her to eat gluten again. And she was very willing to try it out. And within 48 hours, she was able to go out and binge on pizza and have you know funnel cakes and all that kind of stuff. They were out on vacation. And she woke up the next morning expecting to feel terrible. And she said, you know, I feel absolutely fine. I've got a little bit of swelling in my left ankle, but it doesn't hurt. And otherwise, I'm completely asymptomatic. This is amazing that just within a matter of like a day or two, I've been completely transformed. So now I'm not saying that that's going to work for everybody. And who knows exactly what the circumstances were. She was on vacation and in a low stress environment, but it did change for her when she focused on activating the rest, digest, and restore mode of her body and reducing the propensity for inflammation. I think that's so key. And I just want to point out, we're not saying go out and binge on a lot of these things if you're going to do some deep breathing exercises. At the same time, what's amazing is that the response was so immediate to the application of that particular vagus nerve activation tool that was, uh, I think, provided in that recommendation. So what really goes to show there is that we can modulate the immune system function pretty easily and pretty readily when given the right opportunity to do so. And what that means is, like you said, when the immune system is primed and ready for something like gluten to come into the body and the threshold is very low, then the chance of a reaction or a chance of, of going down the path of that immune activation is so much greater versus when the immune system is not on that M1 kind of propensity towards activation side, where it's more on that relax, rest, digest, recover side, where the M2 macrophages are more activated and we're in that acetylcholine particular productive macrophage activity, then the reactions are going to be much more muted, much more much more aligned to optimal function where we are actually functioning from a parasympathetic rest, digest, recovery state. So this is a really interesting, obviously a single case example, but it's really cool to say that now when we take this single case example, now let's go test it out in in real scientific research studies to see what's going on. And let's talk a little bit about some of those potential research studies that you might have come across that relate to autoimmune conditions. And we're going to get into this a lot more in our next episode, but I do want to kind of just briefly touch on some of the conditions that have been addressed or understood from this vagus nerve activation side. Sure. So there's been animal studies in a number of different autoimmune conditions ranging, as you mentioned before, from from rheumatoid arthritis and ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease to psoriatic arthritis, to psoriasis, eczema, Sjogren's syndrome. They've looked at multiple sclerosis, lupus. We're very interested in polymyalgia rheumatica, which is a, a really debilitating condition where people end up almost addicted to steroids. They can never really get themselves off steroids. I view other things that are beyond the traditional view of what autoimmune disease is typically defined are things like diabetes that we've talked about before, insulin resistance. That's really an autoimmune response to excessive weight. There's other ways to trigger inflammation that occur that result in things like depression and anxiety. In fact, cognitive impairment and depression and anxiety are hallmarks of people who have 
the more traditional autoimmune diseases. So to the extent that there's excessive inflammation in the body, to the extent that that excessive inflammation is not helping the body, but is actually hurting the body, is in some sense either could call it an autoimmune disease because it's your immune system doing something destructive to you or auto-inflammatory, in which case you can say that the immune system is being overly responsive and as a result, again, causing problems. It doesn't have to simply be defined as the adaptive immune system having a reactive chemical or a reactive structure like a major histocompatibility complex or a, an antibody that's binding to self. That's, I think, the traditional view of things, but it's not necessarily as encompassing and it's not as truthful when it comes to the role of the immune system in hurting us. Yeah, I completely agree. I can't concur more with that statement. I think it it really goes to show that we have this traditional view of what autoimmunity is, and yet so many of the same processes occur in, in conditions that we know are not known to be generally on the outside autoimmune conditions. We do have that same inflammatory response, that same inflammatory style reaction that's going to occur. And we need to make sure that in those chronic states that the inflammation level is controlled, monitored, lowered even. And so we don't go into that destructive phase of immune system activation. So this is really what we wanted to kind of discuss today. And I think this is a great place to leave off today because it's going to lead into our next discussion for those who are listening today to listen to the next one, because it's uh, really exciting what we're going to be talking about. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it too. We're going to have uh, an individual who's spent a big portion of his career focused on that pathway, that parasympathetic activation pathway, and how it plays a role in that immune reflex. I think it's going to be an exciting conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited to learn more about the nitty gritty behind the research that was done and understand some of the non-published information is out there with regards to how these processes can be monitored and supported in a very positive way versus the negative destruction way that we see happening so many times. All right. So thank you so much for joining JP. Thank you all for listening. Please keep an eye out for that next episode and please share this with anyone that you think could use this information, whether it's a practitioner a patient, a friend, a loved one, whoever needs to hear this, please share this information with them because we just want to get this out to more people that need to hear positive information about how to upgrade their health. Have a wonderful day. We'll talk soon. Thank you.